0: Well, as we come to the end of this chapter, as we come to the end of this prayer, we also come to the end of that last night that Jesus spent with his disciples prior to the arrest and execution. In the previous chapters, Jesus has shared a meal with them. He has washed their feet. He has given them commandments. He's told them to love one another. He's answered questions concerning the fact that he is about to leave them, but he will still provide for them. And following it all, at the very end, Jesus prays. And, you know, it rather underscores, again, uh, as as we take this further look at this prayer, uh, how important prayer is you know this is the last hours that Jesus has with his disciples the final moments before he goes to the cross and he ended in prayer the one who understood prayer better than anyone else spends his time in intercession now throughout the evening Jesus had been giving the disciples uh, much encouragement and as much teaching as he possibly could He warns them about what is about to happen. He reminds them about his, his provision in his absence. But now Jesus turns from offering information to them to offering intercession for them. Uh, This move from information to intercession is important if we want to understand what's going on in John 17. If you want to understand how to read this chapter, we need to remember that it is a prayer. Uh, Jesus is not giving commands uh, to the disciples, and therefore we who would follow. He is praying. We need to read this text in light of what Jesus is doing. Uh, You see, uh, Jesus is not instructing he is not preaching he is not teaching uh, he's not even encouraging Jesus is praying and this means that John 17 is not a list of demands placed on us it's actually a series of requests uttered on our behalf and that's different You see, we don't get to turn John 17 into a to do list uh, for the church. Instead, we need to see that we are the subject of another's prayer. Now, I'm painfully aware, believe you me, I am unbelievably painfully aware of how much I need your prayers. It's just a fact. And when I hear someone pray on my behalf, you know, I can go through an array of feelings. Maybe you're the same when you hear someone pray for you. Sometimes I feel comforted. Other times I'm uh, humbled. Uh, Quite often I feel quite vulnerable, not knowing what's going to be said next. (laughs) Sometimes I feel a bit awkward. (laughs) But under it all, I am incredibly grateful that someone cares enough to do that most important thing, to pray However, one thing to bear in mind and pertinent to this passage that we have here is that when we are prayed for, we're not in control. (laughs) It's not about us doing something. When people pray for us, they, not we, are the ones doing the asking. It is God, not we, who is doing the answering. And if Jesus was uh, here teaching or exhorting his disciples, and by extension us, we would then strive to meet those expectations. But instead, John 17 is a prayer. We get to overhear a prayer on our behalf. We're not called to action at this moment. Instead, our role is to Wonder, to be in amazement as the Father and the Son spend their time discussing the likes of you and I. And make no mistake, uh, as we see in the opening verse of our text, in those final moments, as death looms, Jesus is praying for you and me. That's what we see in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, that is the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word what this means is that when this prayer focuses on unity, uh, which it does, and finishes on a note of love, I am to remember that this is a prayer. I don't get to harangue you on the extent to which you might or might not meet up to these heavenly expectations. I, I don't get to do a sermon telling you to pull your socks up and be more loving, be more unified, because that rather misses the point of what's actually going on. It misses the point of it being a prayer and actually happens to obscure something even more glorious that is going on in this text. Now, Jesus is very clearly praying for us. Uh, however, However, in order for us to understand what he is praying for, we need to see that everything he says is in the context of the relationship between himself and the Father. So, as we see, this request for unity amongst the believers is in the context of the Father and Jesus being one that's what we see through this text but let me just read out again verses 21 to 23 that they may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that I have given that you have given me I have given them that they may be one even as we are one I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The point there is at the very center of the prayer is the unity between the Father and the Son. And it once again reminds us that the whole of the Bible is primarily about God and revealing God. And then it's, it's how we are seen in relation to that that it speaks to us. We are supposed to be a reflection of him. And the call for unity amongst the believers is because that is a reflection of the unity within the Godhead. Uh, the people of God have always been called to be a reflection of of God. That has always been our calling. Um, In the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites are called upon to be different from all the nations around them. Uh, And one of the greatest contrasts that they have, one of the the things that really makes them stand out, is that they are a people who are loved by God. Uh, They're not trying to to run around and do enough things to, to meet some sort of deity's validation. In the book of Exodus, they are people who are loved. They are the focus of the love of God. And they witness this love in action when they are rescued from Egypt, rescued from slavery. And yet that love is then declared in um, Exodus 19 verse 5. This love is really articulated when God looks at them and through this lens of love says that they are precious jewels. In Leviticus, they're called upon to reject the idolatrous actions of the nations around them. supposed to be a contrast to the rest of the world because they were to be a reflection of God. The great theme in the book of, of Leviticus is that these were people who were enabled to enter into the presence of God. And from there, they were to be a reflection of him. And so these people, you know, they would dress differently, they would eat differently, they would live differently, and each action was designed to be a contrast to the world, each uh, a way of reflecting Yahweh, the Lord their God. And so when you read the book of Leviticus, um, you know, when you read this, it's not an arbitrary list of things to do. Instead, there are opportunities for the people to find God and reflect God to the world. Uh, we know this because actually whenever you read Leviticus, whenever you even just skim read it, you'll see that quite often through the list you'll see, for I am the Lord your God, for I am Yahweh your God. Uh, in other words, um, you know, it's not just that this is something to do, it reflects him. It's always been the case. Um, That means when you look at um, Leviticus 19, verse 14, where the people are told uh, not to ridicule the deaf or trip up the blind. They're told that it's because I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God. In other words, if you do that, that is the very opposite of who I am. Instead of some sort of uh, survival of the fittest or, you know, something like that, what we have here is a concern for the vulnerable, and we see God's enmity towards those who would use power against the vulnerable. We see a concern in the very heart of God. There's no room, therefore, for cruelty in the people of God. Because we're supposed to be this reflection of him. In the prophets, such as in Isaiah 5, verse 7, where the people are told that they were to be a, a land of righteousness and justice because then it would be the undeniable witness that God was amongst them. It was the undeniable evidence that God was real and made a real change to people. Because it's a reflection pointing the world to him the people of God have always been called to be a reflection to be the evidence that God is real that he really changes lives to show him in all of his glory to our world in darkness and this continues into the New Testament I mean we read that previously in John 13 verse 35 by this all the people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another And in our passage today in verses 20 and 23, uh, the thing that we reflect, the aspect of God that we are called upon to reflect to the world is unity. And that's because there is unity within the Trinity. When there's a lack of unity, it rather jars with the very image and picture of who he is. Now, again, at this point, it'd be very easy for someone like me to get distracted and to begin to make this into a list of things to do. Again, having said how important this is, you know, at this point, I could turn to you and say, you know, be more unified, you know, pull together in the right di- direction, or you're letting God down. You know, that's the kind of thing it would be very tempting to say, but it's not what's going on here because this is a prayer. There's something more going on here than just that. You see, but despite everything that the people see in the Exodus, despite the miracles, despite the rescue, despite the way that God sees them, Despite the fact he provides everything that they need going through the desert, they still failed to reflect him. As we see in Isaiah 5 verse 7, instead of the righteousness and justice that would have reflected Yahweh to the nations, instead the people go their own way. They go and in the end they're just the same as all the other nations. The same bloodshed, the same injustice, the same cruelty. When it comes to the unity... Of John 17, we've got to be mindful that the disciples themselves were hardly a unified bunch. (laughs) We've got plenty of examples of them vying for positions, seeking their own interests first. Uh, Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28, uh, we see James and John at the kind of prompting of their mother uh, to go in and demand some sort of special position, greater than all the ten. And as we see there, it causes ructions within the group. In Mark 9, 33 to 37, we see the almost exasperated response of Jesus to his disciples because they've been busy arguing all day as to which of them was the greatest. They themselves are hardly a unified bunch. And what do you think would happen if we were left to our own devices? If it was just a simple case of me telling you to be more unified Do you actually imagine that we would be any different? (laughs) Called upon to be the evidence that God is real, that God really changes lives. It cannot be left entirely to our own devices. Called upon to be a reflection of God, we too are supposed to stand in the world as different. Only all too often we're not. All too often you know, we do rely on our own strength and so we are a poor imitation of God at best. And we cannot live up to this calling to be this perfect representation, this perfect reflection of God. And that's why a list of things to do, a message simply telling us to be more unified is ultimately doomed. And that's why Jesus prays. That's why he takes it out of our hands. (laughs) That's why he takes it out of our own efforts to make this thing a reality. Notice what Jesus prays. He does not simply pray, oh, let them be unified, let them agree with each other, let them pull in the right direction. He actually asks for something far greater than that. You see, the unity of the Son and the Father, it serves as the foundation for the unity amongst the believers. And so he actually says, let these believers be drawn into the Trinity itself. Look again at what it says in verse 21 that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. It's an idea repeated in in verses uh, 23 and 26. It's an idea expanded elsewhere in the New Testament. It's reminiscent of um, John 15, verse 4, when Jesus was saying, you know, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And uh, when we looked at that text back in September, I thought, how, how do you explain the idea of being in God and God being in us? Uh, at the time, I uh, related of when I was a boy with my dad on, on a fishing boat, and we had these creels, we're trying to catch uh, lobsters and crabs and things, so we're working on the creels. And he, he was trying to teach this idea to me, and he threw the creel overboard, and he asked me, where's the creel? And for a moment, I thought he'd gone daft because I said, like, well, you've literally just thrown it in the sea. The creel's in the sea. And he goes, good. Now, where's the sea? I said, oh, okay, in part, it is in the creel. Uh, it's too <laughs> huge to be contained within the creel. But now I see the creel thrown in there. The sea is in it and all around it. The creel is it. I, I kind of got it with that image with that picture, as it were. When we think of Christ as the sea and ourselves as the creel, we find that he is in us and we are in him. And here that idea is taken to its logical conclusion. When we we as a community are said to be brought into God, we are to be immersed in God. We are to have God in us. And it is only by that that we can become the people that reflect him. It's only by having him that we're able to show him to others it is through his power that we get to put on a new self created in the likeness of God able to live in true righteousness and holiness that's the message of Ephesians 4 verse 24 and Colossians 3 verse 10 we're only able to reflect him because the creator has made us new because the author of life has breathed new life into us Uh, You know, when when, uh, Ezekiel was faced with that vision of the dry bones, we've got to remember, it was God that brought them back to life. It was not down to the efforts of these scattered remains. (laughs) Just in the same way, it's not up to us to try hard enough or fulfill enough commands that sees this change, this life brought to us. Ultimately, we're not called upon to be unified so that we impress the world we are called upon to be changed to be so like him that we actually go and convict the world we are to be changed because then there can be no doubt that God is real and that he really changes people There are many texts which try and explain this. Uh, there are many texts which talk about being taken into the Godhead, about being something new, being something different, and having lives dramatically and wonderfully transformed in the power of God. But my go-to text, my favorite text to really explain what Jesus is talking about here is in Second Peter chapter 1. Now this is a text that I think really does help us understand what's going on. And it helps us understand not just an idea, but how it impacts our daily lives. Uh, how we should be different every single day. How, how this actually works for you right now. When it comes to 1 Peter, it's important that we know that from the opening verse, Peter talks about how salvation is a gift from God. He talks about how everything from that moment is done in the power of God, that there is nothing that we can do in our own strength. And this all comes to a head in verse 4. Peter there talks about how we are to be partakers in the divine. So you can see the parallel uh, from, from John there partakers with the divine. Now, uh, uh, there is to be evidence of this encounter. You can't meet with God and then go unchanged. There should be evidence that you have God within you, that you are really taking part with God as a new creation. And so... uh, this evidence, this evidence of the great change is listed in Peter. Uh, He talks about a way of actually measuring the change. He says, you know what? You want to know if someone has really met with God and been changed by God and is being changed by God as an ongoing process? I'll let you know. And so in Peter, we have a way of measuring it in verses 5 to 8. He says, there's a list of ways that change should be seen for we are a people that should show evidence of virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. And yet again, I need to remind myself, I need to remember that we're not supposed to be making a list. (laughs) You see, when when I look at this list, when I look at these wonderful things, I then look at myself and I think, oh dear. You know, it becomes a a stick to beat yourself with because we find ourselves failing in one category, at least, or another. But Peter has been saying the whole way through that there is nothing you can do out with the power of God. If we looked at these attributes here as a list to be achieved, that is a burden that cannot be lifted. It is akin to telling the blind man that if he just opens his eyes a wee bit wider, he'll see, or or, or that the cripple, you know, you can tell him to leap if he just tries a bit harder, or if we go back to those bones of, of Ezekiel, you know, we just tell them, you know, just to move of their own accord. That's why we should note that. Actually, in, in, there's, a, there's a Greek word in Second Peter that I think actually really helps. It's a beautiful, it provides a beautiful analogy to help clear this up. Uh, where we often simply read a, a command in verse 5, now add to your faith, uh, the Greek more, more literally says, and I'm glad you're sitting down for this one, uh, but the Greek more literally says, dance in faith. Now, you can understand a number of the translators felt a bit awkward about that, the idea of dancing. It's supposed to be a metaphor, to be fair. Uh, but even so, you can understand an element of discomfort. It says, epikoriogio. It says, having taken part in the divine nature, now you dance in faith. You take part in a divine dance. Uh, now, um I should say that I, I don't make any claims to great dancing prowess uh, myself, uh, to be entirely honest. Uh, however, I have had lots of practice uh, ever since I was wee, and pro- probably about that height. Uh, you know, I grew up in a community where you know, dancing and Cayleys were, were quite a, a significant feature uh, of, the, kind of you know, the, the cultural life. And so you, know, you grew up dancing. However, more important than that, I've had the same dancing partner for over 20 years. <laughs> In, in case you're wondering, that is my wife. Uh, you know, this is something that I've been dancing with since we were teenagers. And uh, what I find absolutely amazing about it is that it's a completely different experience dancing with her because I know her. I know how she moves. She knows me and how I move or don't. Uh, it's a completely different experience when, when you know maybe you know the partners change to dancing with someone else. It just feels kind of awkward sometimes, you know. I know her, and we therefore dance better together. That Even though I'm older and slower, uh, we still dance better together year after year because I know her. I no longer stand on her toes or her dress. Uh, We no longer awkwardly collide or pull apart at the wrong times because we know each other. We move across the floor with greater ease and style because of the depth of knowledge between us. That's why it's a good analogy for Peter to use. That's why it's a good analogy for us to really try and grasp the difference between what's being called of us here and a list of things to do. We're supposed to dance through life with God. We're supposed to take his hand in his dance. He takes the lead. Do not get me wrong. We take his hand and we dance with him. And as we get to know him better and better and better, we dance better. We, we move better. Uh, the more time you spend with God, the more the evidence comes through. As you dance with him through life, as you go through life together, spending time with him, he is changing you. And this is the list, this is the evidence, as it were, that is here. Uh, you know, when you spend time with them over and over and over and over and over again, and you get to know them better and better, just like the dance, you know, you know what you're doing. You're no longer kind of pulling apart or, or, or colliding. You are moving together through life, and you are being changed. And so this is not a list of demands. This is not a a call to try harder, either in John in the prayer or in Peter here. The idea of taking part in the divine and taking part with him and taking hold of his hand and going through life together means that you are changed. And the more you do it, the more you are changed. And we should see it. We should see the evidence. And this list are the things that God is doing in you because Jesus prayed. Because we take his hand, because we dance with him, we spend time with him. And it's not about us, it's about what he can do. And so we don't have this list of demands. We have someone who says, Come dance with me. I will lead you, I will guide you. If you really take part, you will change. Change is needed, but change is possible. Change by the hand of God, and we are called upon to take that hand to be led in the dance. And we don't have that list of requirements. You know, when we think back to John 17, we don't just simply have a demand for more unity. We're told to dance and be changed and to become what we are meant to be, an undeniable witness of what he does in our life and what he does in a community of changed lives. Instead of looking at a list and feeling a burden, we look at that and we have a cry of hallelujah in our hearts because it's about what he can do. And that is why it was important for me to start by noting that here Jesus is asking for us and not asking from us. The glory is his, the change is by his hand. Our part is to take his hand. <laughs> Our part is to throw ourselves in like a creel in the sea, to, to be completely immersed with God. That means spending time with Him, being with Him, listening to Him. And over time, the change that He brings in our lives becomes evident. However, as we see in John 17, the goal is not simply that I am changed as an individual. It's not even actually just that as a community we are changed by God. As we see in John 17, it's also outward looking. This change acts as a way of demonstrating to the world who do not know God the evidence of who Christ is. And so we, the recipients of the prayer, recipients of this new life, we get to take part in this dance so that we reflect him. So we would indeed be unified, and that we would indeed love with a love poured out by the Trinity, with God in us reaching out to the world. Let us pray. (coughs) Gracious Heavenly Father, it is indeed with joy that we look at these lists of things. It is with joy that we look at what would be impossible for us to do in our own efforts because we take our eyes from there and on to you and rejoice that it is you that does such great things in us. I just simply pray, O Lord, that you would indeed give us the strength, give us the realization of what we're meant to be and who we are with. I pray, O Lord, that you would enable us to remember to spend time with you, to be changed by you, and to then go out And for your glory, be a witness to that wonderful change that you bring. Lord, be with us as we seek to be a reflection of you this week. In Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen.